I'm speaking with Steve Taylor, who's been a major part of Christian music and the media for over 30 years. Steve's often been considered a controversial figure to traditional churches due to his accurate criticisms of the organized church. Today, he continues to write and produce music and has broadened his portfolio also by directing movies. Do you consider yourself, Steve, to be a a rebel with a cause? (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I think Bono put it more succinctly, but the easiest thing in the world now is to um, kind of follow the well-worn path of being a rock and roll rebel. You know, by not following that path, it's probably a little more unique in this day and age. I wasn't a particularly rebellious kid. I liked my parents and um, grew up in a good home. I heard this this band, The Clash, when I was in college, and uh, I was so inspired that I decided I want to do what I want to do what they do. And their music was sort of protest music, and so that's uh, that's primarily what I've written is protest music. So that was the original uh, intention when you were as a solo artist in the uh, in the eighties and early in early nineties. Yeah, I just I just felt like particularly. Uh, Within the church, there was so much hypocrisy. Um, you know, we didn't want to talk about it, but the outside world saw it very clearly. I ended up writing a lot about, you know, hypocrisy within the church and outside the church, and uh, that was what kind of fueled everything. And how did the church uh, respond to <laughs> to some of these uh, criticisms? Well, nobody's crazy about being criticized, and. Uh, you know, not everybody liked it. But I think it's one thing when criticism comes from outside the ranks, and it's another thing when it comes from inside. And for myself, if uh, if I get criticized by someone that I know doesn't like me anyway, I tend to not listen to it. But if it's uh, coming from a friend or uh, a family member, uh, you know, I, knew, I know they're doing it for my own good, so I tend to listen a little better. At the end of your solo career, and really, I guess that was, what, early, early 90s, you know, when you finished up with that, but then you went for a major departure in your career with, uh, with starting up Squint Entertainment, and you were really instrumental with just an eclectic uh, mix of bands that you had with that label. Can you describe it? Just, to, just give us a bit of a synopsis of the type of bands that were on Squint and how you're able to help them. Well, you know, I liked a variety of music within the corner general heading of uh, modern music, I guess. So yeah, we had a really diverse label. Uh, Chevelle was modern, kind of hard rock, little metal-y maybe. Uh, this band LA Symphony was probably the best hip-hop collective I'd ever heard. Um, Waterdeep was kind of a jam band, but they wrote really good songs and uh, really smart lyrics. Sixpence on the Richer, of course, ended up having a huge uh, couple of huge pop hits around the world. But uh, they were a really good rock band, you know. They're they're known more for their pop music, but they're a really strong band, uh, writing really good songs, and uh, they could they could rock it out on stage back in the day. So, oh, and then there's this other band, Burlap to Cashmere, which uh, kind of took um, world music influences and made it into something that was totally their own. And and they were one of the best live bands I've ever seen. So yeah, the the label was quite diverse, but we kind of felt like that was part of the the label's strength. Is there was a lot of diversity within the la- within the label. Well, some of the listeners to the antidote might recognize uh, some of those bands because we have played Chigalva Vera and uh, 
Sixpence None the Richer. And uh, last week you heard Burlap to Cashmere with actually with their new record after a 13-year absence. So now your uh, abilities as a significant songwriter carry on. Describe your association with both the, with the Newsboys and uh, Peter Furler. With Newsboys, uh, when I first started working with them, they were a band uh, recently moved to the U.S. from Australia. A lot of bands, I find, they don't write very good lyrics, but they don't really realize that their lyrics aren't very good. And with Newsboys, uh, Peter was very upfront. He said, man, uh, you know, I'm just not very good at lyrics. I write them because I have to, but it would be really good to get someone who is a little better. And so originally my role was to write lyrics, and then uh, I got more involved in uh, production based on working on some lyrics with them and it ended up being a really good partnership that uh, lasted for many years. As to even Peter Furler's current album On Fire, you've got such a range, that's why I said it before when we started the interview about you just having a breadth of experience just in Christian media because of course you're also known for directing. I remember watching the one feature film that you did, Second Chance uh, starring uh, Michael W. Smith. It's showing a Christian worldview, but of course, this was, again, this was a real slap up against the back of the head for some Christians in, in larger organized churches. Well, we the idea was, uh, what if we took the genre of kind of that black and white buddy movie genre, where you have a black guy and a white guy, and they're stuck together, and they can't figure out a way to get along um, until the end when they figure out a way to get along? And I thought it would be interesting to apply that to... Uh, kind of the modern um, modern church scene where Michael is the associate pastor at a big suburban megachurch, big white megachurch, and he ends up getting sent downtown against his will and working with an urban black church. And um, uh, there was a lot of themes that we could explore within that kind of context that uh, I thought would were interesting to me and would be interesting to an audience. And, and certainly um, I thought a lot of that hadn't been uh, dealt with in a movie before, so was an enjoyable experience. So now you've got another really, really major project with your uh, directing of Donald Miller's best-selling book is being made into a a movie. And of course, that's Blue Like Jazz, which was a big hit on the New York Times bestsellers list. How did actually getting involved with Donald Miller and trying to take what was a collection of stories and actually convert it into an actual storyline that would work in a movie. Well, Blue Like Jazz isn't a book that you put down and you say, oh, I see this movie in my head. Um, like you said, it's a kind of a collection of essays, but it's, its core is about a guy who grows up in suburban Houston, very conservative kind of fundamental Southern Baptist church upbringing, and he ends up moving to Portland, Oregon, and in the book, Donald Miller is living there in his early 30s, and he's a few blocks away from a place called Reed College in Portland, which is very, very much kind of the opposite of what he grew up in, and he ends up auditing classes and uh, making friends there and writing about the experience. So when I pitched Don on the idea of turning this into a movie, my big change was let's make your character a 19-year-old college student who goes to college at Reed and lives the experience as opposed to someone who's kind of watching other people live it. And uh, to his credit, he was up for the idea and ended up being a collaborator on the screenwrite, uh, on the screenplay as well, which typically is not a, a good idea to have the author of the book working on the screenplay with you. But in Don's case, he was, uh, 
he was a really great collaborator and then, then the, the screenplay turned out well and the movie uh, we believe turned out really well too well, I guess funding for Blue Like Jazz uh, was quite a feat. Tell us how that was actually arranged. Yeah, we just couldn't pull the funding together. It wasn't a particularly expensive movie, and it was, as you said, based on a New York Times bestseller. I thought it was going to be easy, but it, it just wasn't. We weren't finding kind of the, enough private investors to shoot the movie, and uh, we finally cobbled just enough money together to get it uh, shot, and on the eve of opening our production office one of the investors dropped out so I called Don the author and said you're not going to believe it uh, this guy dropped out I don't know how we're going to go forward and Don was bummed out as well he blogged about it the next day on his uh, quite popular blog and said sorry everybody the movie's dead we did our best we couldn't make it happen and then followers of the project fans of the project started writing us back and saying we'll you got to do this. I'll give you 10 bucks or my friends and I will get together and we'll give you 50 bucks. And a couple guys in Franklin, Tennessee started a Kickstarter campaign, a crowdfunding website called kickstarter.com. And the, the name of the project was save blue like jazz. And, uh, miraculously in 30 days, this, uh, save blue like jazz project raised uh, $350,000 from 4,500 backers from around the world. So, uh, that's how we got to make the movie. And it's, still blows my mind when I think about it. So when do you actually see the movie being released, uh, released to theaters? Yes, it'll be out in theaters uh, next spring, and um, uh, keep an eye out for it. I think it's, uh, I think it's turned out really well, and uh, hopefully uh, people show up on opening weekend. Well, it was an exciting and a uh, bit of an eye-opening book to read. So what's the future going to hold for Steve Taylor? I mean, after going from you know, 80s, 80s new wave to uh, record producing, directing. I mean, again, uh, what more can the future hold for Steve Taylor? Well, I've got a short attention span, so, um, uh, but I'd love to do another movie project and I'm sorting through a, a few different ideas to f- figure out what, what's next. Hopefully it won't take me five years to get the next one off the ground. And, it, I, you know, I, I got to admit, I, I miss music a little bit, so who knows, maybe there'll be some music in the future too. This is The Antidote. I'm Dave Hawkins, and we've been speaking with uh, Steve Taylor. Any last thoughts, Steve? Uh, You know, as uh, the Scottish say, I'd never pet a burning dog. That's my best last thought for you. (laughs) I'll remember that if I ever come up to uh, to thinking about petting a burning dog. (laughs) Well, listen, Steve, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thank you, David.